Welcome to Smooth Operator, the podcast that explores affiliate marketing and digital media. I'm your host, Blake Saunders, and I'll be guiding you through this fascinating world by interviewing the brilliant minds and innovative leaders that shape it. Get ready to be inspired as we uncover the secrets to success in the world of content, commerce, and beyond. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the strategies and tactics that have propelled our guests to the forefront of this industry. Smooth Operator is your go-to source for staying ahead in the ever-evolving digital media space. Subscribe now and let's get started on this exciting journey together. Just a quick word from one of our sponsors and we'll get into the episode. This episode of the Smooth Operator podcast is brought to you by Bullwhip, the leading affiliate performance intelligence and revenue optimization platform for premium publishers. Whether you're an enterprise publisher or premium niche site, Bullwhip can help you optimize audience growth, page engagement, and yield to accelerate your affiliate revenue growth. Head over to bullwhip.io and sign up for a demo to learn how Bullwhip can help you scale and optimize your affiliate business today. Welcome to episode five of Smooth Operator. Today's guest is Camilla Cho, the SVP of e-commerce at Vox Media. Camilla brings almost two decades of experience in media, having transitioned her career from business development to commerce and affiliate marketing. In this episode, we'll delve into her work at New York Magazine that led to the creation of The Strategist and explore the broader commerce strategy at Vox. And lastly, we get into some of Camilla's thoughts on future trends and where the industry is going. Camilla, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start with uh, you giving us a bit of your background? Thanks for having me, Blake. Happy to be here. My background, I'm currently the SVP of e-commerce at Vox Media. I joined via the New York Media, New York Mag merger about four years ago. At New York Media, I was the GM of e-commerce there, helped to start The Strategist, which is still our main e-commerce brand over at Vox Media. Prior to that, my career has been in various different business development and strategy roles for all sorts of different media companies. So I've been at IAC, Viacom, MTV Networks, AOL. And so with a little bit of startups sprinkled in between there as well. And the common thread through most of the positions I've held have been in business development roles. And yes, it's the usual of finding partners, finding distribution partners, doing ref share deals, doing vendor deals and things like that. But a lot of the focus has been on finding new opportunities and new revenue streams for media companies. So how do we go beyond the traditional advertising business? What other opportunities are out there? What should we be taking advantage of? How does that fit with the company's resources and strengths and capabilities? And assessing whether that is something we should experiment and test into and invest in. And so a lot of my jobs have involved vetting opportunities, whether that is organically through the company's own resources or through partnerships or joint ventures, and in some cases through acquisitions and M&A deals. And so that's been the common thread and probably have worked on hundreds of deals in my career of all different types. Um, but I will say I'm happy to now be in a more, much more operational role with PL responsibilities and overseeing a growing business line. And you already touched on this a little bit, but as you went from these different companies and um, you sort of evolved from business development to e-commerce, but when you're in business development, 
what sort of excited you about those roles and what's been the evolution of, of how media companies have generated revenue? Have you seen it change over the last 20 years? I mean, business development has always been an, an interesting and exciting role function for me, especially early in my career, because it gives you exposure into so many different initiatives and projects at the company. And it also exposes you to a lot of different teams and departments and functional groups within the company. So it's a good way to get a nice bird's eye view at a major big company. And I've enjoyed looking at new opportunities and vetting new opportunities. I think that opportunity to change the trajectory of the company or division that I'm in and uncover a new way for the company to grow or expand has been something always very exciting for me to look into. It comes with its frustrations because many deals that you work on may never come to fruition or never be implemented. But I think for a while, it was fun to look into all these different areas and see what is actually possible rather than working on the current just status quo business. The evolution has also been interesting. I've noticed a shift from biz dev deals generating revenue from third parties. So, you know, classic, this is like probably going to date myself, but distribution deals, whether it's with MSN or something like that, with these kind of bigger platforms, I'm going to give you some content or some sort of IP and we're going to do a ref share split. And then we're going to work out some of the terms and what you can have access to and to what extent. And those were a general theme of a lot of the deals in the past with media companies, especially in the roles that I've been in. I've definitely started seeing probably in the past 10 years or so, a little bit more of a shift on focusing on generating your own revenue. So what are the new opportunities that I can organically start without that heavy reliance on another partner, which obviously has more risks and then those partnerships can be very short-lived. I think as we all know, media companies have some hesitation, trepidation about getting too close with some of the bigger platforms. And so we're already so dependent on them anyway. So to further those dependencies with large companies presents some level of risk. Can you give an example of everyone sort of knows the MSN or the Google News or the different distribution partnerships, but can you talk a little bit more about a specific example of like an on-site type partnership? Yeah, I think varying your own revenue is kind of like, we're going to start a new premium membership program. We're going to launch an affiliate business. We're going to launch a new brand extension play. We're going to get into podcasting or things mm-hmm. like that. So kind of new mediums of how else to do content and storytelling rather than just taking the written form of content, usually in the form of articles and finding kind of new places to distribute that to. It's kind of like, how else can we tell stories in different forms? Got it. So that's kind of more what I meant by um, more of your kind of organically growing your own revenue stream. And it makes sense because in that case, it's much more operationally focused. Like in the first example, you're just taking your content and monetizing it with a different audience. You're relying on someone else to show it to other people. But in the latter example, you're saying that, oh, wow, the company actually has to build something to make the revenue. So there's like a lot more operational risk. It's not simple binary, turn it on or turn it off. You have to actually organize a new brand, more riders, things like that. 
much more, obviously it's much more involved, but I think there's something more rewarding about building it yourself and kind of taking ownership of your own brand extension plays or getting into a new distribution channel rather than, like I said before, which is much more of just taking your content and just taking another version of it to other platforms. And it's the same piece of content. But as you said, all it is, is it's like on a different site or a domain and being exposed to a different... And there's definitely value in that. I'm not downplaying the value there. I think there's still good value to be had by exposing your content to new audiences that you may not have reached yourself. So that is a good audience extension, audience development play in some instances. But I think I do see media companies having more of that appetite to build their own. And if you if you do it correctly, it's a competitive advantage. It creates a deeper moat, things like that, where it's it's positive for the business. Totally, yeah. So having worked at some of the largest media companies, like you mentioned, like ISC, Viacom, AOL. Can you talk about what it's like working inside the larger platforms with multiple brands? And in some instances, some of these brands had sort of their own distribution or had access to significant audiences. Working inside some of these huge conglomerates can be both rewarding and challenging at the same time. A lot of brands, you need to get to know each of these brands and When you have a big portfolio of a bunch of different brands that reach different types of audiences, that can be fun to get to know a lot of the different brands and have as somebody who's in business development or strategy be able to leverage a multitude of brands for various different types of partnership opportunities. But also what ends up happening when you have a large portfolio is you're probably going to have some brands in there that you don't care too much about. And so that sometimes poses some challenges. But I do think it is fun to see a whole bunch of brands and see how they interact or sometimes not interact at all and how those are managed. As you can imagine, with these bigger companies, they are much tougher to navigate, especially when you're early in your career and not quite at that like decision-making or management level. It's hard to see the big picture and it's really to get easily siloed. So whatever department or group you're in, you could easily get siloed. And I've definitely been earlier in my career, like excited to work at these bigger companies, thinking I'm going to get exposed to so many different brands in other areas. But that's really hard to do when you work in a huge company. You're probably going to be in your own lane, your team. And it's not as easy in some of these organizations to actually get outside. Of um, so that sometimes gets frustrating. And then there's... <laughs> Oftentimes, the frustration of bureaucracy, red tape, trying to cut across that red tape, which I've experienced frequently and have led to me jumping shift to smaller startups when that frustration level gets too high. But I think for people who are a little bit more entrepreneurial, want to move quickly and test and experiment and do a bunch of different things and have a bunch of balls up in the air, sometimes those bigger media company environments can be somewhat stifling for them. I'm thankful that I've had the chance to work at the mix of very small startups, scrappy, very small teams and just getting going all the way up to these really large conglomerates and have gotten a good mix (laughs) of exposure and experience at these various different size companies. In media today, because there is disruption happening and some of the larger digital peer players are impaired for a variety of reasons. 
there's this notion that the power is swinging back to some of the legacy publishers like Hearst and Condé Nast. What are your thoughts on this? I think right now in this environment, there's a lot of value to great brands. And the Hearsts and Condé Nasts of the world have a bunch of really great storied brands. And these are brands that are well-recognized. They carry credibility and familiarity. We've been exposed to them. And I think in this age of influencers, creators that have popped out of nowhere in some instances, and then a lot of misinformation out there also on some of the social media platforms, I think there is a need for brands that have more authority and convey that level of trust with their users. And uh, some of these brands that have been around for a long time kind of offer that. Also, I would say in this current environment that we're in, where there is a lot of disintermediation and new technologies that are springing up that could pose opportunities as well as threats, you need capital to be able to invest in your own product and engineering team to see how you can compete. And as we talked about before, maybe reducing some of the heavy reliance and some of the bigger tech platform. And for you to do that, you're going to need to invest in product engineering, data analytics. You're also going to need capital to be able to experiment and try new things. And so I could see why some of uh, there's a little bit of a swing back to these legacy publishers that are a little bit more established that have bigger teams and have also the deeper pockets to be able to make some investment plays. But I think at the end of the day, it's really about the companies that have strong brands that can exist without heavy reliance on Google, SEO, um, or the side door traffic, as we refer to, that stand on there. And it is not just a Hearst Econ and us, but I would say even Vox Media does have some of these like really, really strong brands. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, it's the audience trusts it, then it's also key with the advertisers. The advertisers know that they can trust those brands for content adjacency, having positive content, and they're not going to invest in and put their advertising next to something that's going to have controversy in the future. Exactly. As you talked about, like you've worked at some of the larger media companies. Can you talk about some of your early career influences and pivotal moments throughout those different steps? Yeah. Um, I think there's been so many early influences, whether it's been, um, you know, projects or notable managers and leaders that I've been exposed to. But I would say in terms of kind of, you know, the time that like something clicked (laughs) in my head was figuring out that for me to have a sustained level of excitement, energy, and motivation, you really need to work for brands uh, that you care about. And I work for my fair share brands in functions and roles that were really interesting. But ultimately, I did not care about those brands. And then your level of energy, excitement, motivation is going to go down to some extent. And I think in my career, you know, especially after I joined New York Media, I joined New York Media because I really love the New York Magazine brand. I've 
been a consumer of it for a very long time. It's the only print publication I have renewed over and over again. I read it. I have read it religiously. And it's something I look forward to reading. And I wanted to work for a brand like that. And like, I genuinely care about helping to sustain the brand, grow the brand, and figure things out for the brand. And I think for me, that's also what's led to me being able to take more initiatives in my career and push forward through challenging moments and also just be constantly curious and wanting to learn more and more to see what else can I do for this brand, for this company to help continue to grow. And I haven't really experienced that when I work for brands that didn't feel that much of a connection to. So let's talk about your role at New York Mag, which evolved into Vox. Looks like when you first started there, you were in business development, and then you started to explore e-commerce and you became GM for the e-commerce role. So can you just talk a little bit about that transition? Yeah, the transition was really rewarding and probably one of the best kind of career experiences I've had so far. As you said, I joined as their head of business development on the digital side and was working on a bunch of different projects, a bunch of different initiatives. And the main kind of focus was work on stuff that presents new revenue streams for the company. And so there was a time where I dabbled in figuring out, hey, do we have a play with short form videos? Hey, can we do international expansion? What about if we try to do a premium membership program for New York Magazine? And so these are all areas I looked in, did strategic analysis, competitive analysis, developed kind of test plans and vetted them, modeled out the opportunities. And the next one I landed on was e-commerce. And that actually just randomly almost fell into my lap in some ways. I had somebody on my team who helped the cut which is our woman lifestyle vertical out. And she was like, we're doing some commerce on the cut. Interesting. It's really tiny. It was just basically some links in newsletters and a few articles here and there. And we were making affiliate revenue very passively. There was no focus on it. It was just passive revenue coming in, I believe, a little bit through Amazon and a little bit through Skim Links. And that was about it. And she's like, no, there might be something here. And I really did not know much about commerce or affiliate at all. But she showed me the numbers and said, hey, this might be interesting. And I was like, yeah, it might be interesting to dive into that a little bit further. So I started looking into it and trying to understand the key metrics at play. It seemed like the cut had a pretty engaged audience that did indicate interest in shopping. And so I suggested, hey, what if we do more of this? And what if we do it in a much more focused way? What if we create kind of pages that make it easier for people to shop and browse? And what if we produce content on a more regular basis? And it was like very much geared towards having people shop. And so I got the green light to do a small test and I got a small budget. I got a partner, a great partner from the editorial team. And we set about doing a small test on the cut and set out the success metrics and said, hey, this is what we're going to try to do here for the next four weeks. Went through those four weeks, we blew the key metrics out of the water. We're like, okay, well, that went well. So we increased the scope of the test, made it a bigger test, put in a little bit more budget into it. And basically, fast forward, we went through a series of tests and every single time 
through every round, uh, it was just proving out that there was something much more here. And at the end of these series of tests, we all kind of looked at the metrics and the results and we're like, this is potentially something big and we might not want to just contain it to playing in the cuts sandbox. And so we felt so strongly about it that we thought it was worthy of considering launching a whole new brand dedicated to shopping content. And thus, the strategist was born. And that was a really exciting time. And obviously, I was very involved. I knew the numbers, the data inside it at that point. I think I was probably, a lot of people were involved in getting it off the ground. But in terms of like the data and numbers and what it was telling us in terms of categories and the price points and where people are converting, how people are getting to the articles, like I was kind of on top of all of it. And so I stayed involved. And the more and more um, I got involved, I realized I wanted to take this on and not really let it go. Because in other instances in business development, you kind of, you know, test it and then you model it out. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to now hand over the baton to somebody who's going to actually be the operational lead on it. And then you move on to the next project or the next deal. But this, I did not want to hand off that baton. And to be honest, there wasn't anyone to really hand it off to. It's not like we had an affiliate or e-commerce experienced expert at the company. And so I decided to just play a bigger and bigger role. And naturally, over time, it was a lot for me to handle the business development responsibilities, as well as trying to launch and grow this whole new business and new site for the company. And so Pam Wasserstein, who was our CEO at New York Media, suggested maybe I take this on as my full-time role and offer me the opportunity to be the GM and hand over business development to somebody else that we will hire instead. And so that's how it came to be. I think it was an exciting point in my career where I really got to make that transition of being kind of somebody who was more of an internal consultant strategy person to being much more operational and getting my hands really dirty in terms of setting up a brand, setting up the marketing plan, hiring, figuring out what our budget should be. And uh, it was really fun. It really felt like operating a startup within the confines of a traditional media company, which is like a rare thing you get to do. And yeah, and I'm so grateful that I got to work with also some great folks over on the editorial side. I would say the key to success for us was great partnership on the editorial and business side and really support and championing of this initiative and the strategist and what it means and what it stands for with editorial and leadership. So Adam Moss, who was our EIC at that time, and Pam were huge champions of it. And it was great to work on something that where they also saw the vision and were very excited to push it forward as well. So that provided a lot of internal momentum. And not to mention that when we did launch, we saw really healthy traffic clicks, conversions from the start. And it just got better and better. And so, yeah, it's been a really, that was a really fun transition stage of my career. Can you talk a little bit about the metrics initially that got you excited when you did some of those first tests and then the evolution of the metrics you watched out for in the business as you started to build the team? And what was like 
be your guiding North Star of what you were, tra- obviously probably revenue, but what are some of the other things that you were thinking about? I think the first kind of early indicators to me, even though I didn't know a ton about this business, it felt like the conversion rates and click-through rates on affiliate links were really healthy. And even if you're not in this business, you think, okay, every time a click sends somebody to a retailer's site, and if you could get them to actually convert to a purchase 25% of the time or whatever it may be, that seemed like a very healthy number that we were able to actually influence and get somebody to purchase through good, helpful, valuable content. And we were doing that across various different product categories and various different price points. And for myself, just reading the content in the early days, I read every single word of every single article that was published on The Strategist. And I would read it as though I were a consumer myself and reading this for the first time. And this is my first time on The Strategist. Some of the stuff was so convincing. I remember reading early on, I saw an ode and it was basically, I believe, like three paragraphs on Japanese nail clippers that the writer had discovered at the Narita airport. And I was like, I cannot believe we're going to write an entire article with this many words about nail clippers. And I had zero interest in buying it. I had a lot of kind of initial doubts about it. I read the article and I was like, oh, no doubt about it. I am buying that $15 nail clippers like so easily. I was so convinced. Yeah. And I think it was just this wake up call of how really great service journalism, really great quality editorial content, what it could do to impact purchasing behavior and consumer behavior. And so I think those were just early indicators to me that there was something exciting here. And, you know, I also love the idea that great service journalism, great content, you get rewarded because basically your audience is saying, that was great. I'm convinced I'm buying this. And then you get rewarded with revenue. It was a combination of, I would say, the early kind of metrics, KPIs, along with just getting really appreciative of the content too. Did you bring writers from New York Mag to write articles for The Strategist or did you hire new writers? How does that work? So we deployed a combination of different strategies in terms of content early on. We actually had New York Magazine writers themselves. We encouraged them to hey, if there's something you really love and are passionate about, please write about it and send it our way. And so there was a little bit of getting the internal folks to contribute. And then Alexis Wardloff, who was the editor and she was my editorial partner on all of this, she went out and also got some freelancers that she knew she thought would be great voices to add to the site and also had good following and thought it would be good to seed the site with these types of contributor content. And so she went out and got some great writers to write some great stuff for us. And then we hired up a small team eventually over time, especially once we realized just what level of content production was needed and what areas we wanted to cover and go deeper in. 
like early on, I think we realized, hey, beauty, skincare, especially like budget beauty, skincare, not the super high-end stuff that the cut often writes about and reviews, but some of the more unknown brands and a little bit more budget purchases, like those weren't being covered in a way that was all that meaningful at that time in the marketplace. And so we decided, hey, this is resonating really well. It's converting really well. There's not a ton of competitive content out there. How can we cover this more deeply? And beauty was one of the first areas that we decided to invest in and go a little bit deeper on. And then eventually those categories just kind of organically grew and grew. What's been interesting is I thought in the first year, two years, I was like, I'm sure there's like areas we would never get into because I didn't think we would have the interest from the audience nor the expertise. So things like tech or men's fashion or things like that. And what's been really exciting to see and what's been really great to see is that our audience has expanded quite a bit and the strategist could really cover almost any category, product category. And we had the brand permission to be able to do that. We weren't confined to like, hey, this is a brand that's just going to talk about fashion and beauty. We could write about kids' products and kids' toys. We could also write about headphones and tech gadgets, but we could also still do travel. And we were able to expand. And we saw that there was definitely audience interest to do that. And they were responding very well to most of the areas we went into. And so thus, right now, we cover a wide swath of categories. So as you talk about the audience responding, sounds like your goal has been to get the audience from kind of New York magazine over to the strategist. Do you ever think about organic search traffic? Because you probably have a pretty significant domain authority with New York Mag in terms of ranking for certain search terms to drive net new audience? Yeah. I mean, I think search is such an important source of traffic for content publishers and especially for commerce. So many people still start their shopping journeys on Google, obviously. So it is where we see people that have high intent to shop and convert. So yeah, search is very important. We have tried not to have that be kind of our sole focus of just looking at what's trending on Google. We try to use a variety of different kind of inputs in terms of helping us to figure out which categories or keywords or product areas to cover. But yeah, search is so important. There's no denying it. And the NYMAG domain does carry really good weight on Google. So that's also helped us. I do think one of the things we talked about when we launched the strategist was we did want it to be its own brand. So there was some consideration at some point of should we launch the strategist.com as its own domain or do we go off of NYMAG? And looking back, obviously, I'm really glad we made this decision to stay on NYMAG. And back then, it wasn't so much about domain strength. It was actually because the strategist was a whole new brand and it was not going to initially have a lot of recognition. And to be able to tie that closely to New York Magazine, we thought would be beneficial from an audience growth, audience acquisition standpoint. And then that way we could also get, see some of the benefits of leveraging the New York Mag existing channels, whether that be social or email or the homepage. 
And so we wanted to associate it for a while as New York Mag's strategist and then eventually just the brand up on its own. But looking back, I'm glad we decided to go with it and my Mag domain for sure. New York Mag was acquired by Vox in 2019 and you've transitioned from managing just the strategist to managing all of e-commerce for Vox. So can you talk a little bit about having this portfolio of brands and some areas of success at Vox across the broader portfolio for e-commerce? Yeah. So the broader portfolio, I mean, obviously not all of the brands in the Vox Media portfolio are prone for commerce. So it's a handful of brands. But initially, what we tried to do was take kind of the best practices from the strategist and see if we could apply that to some of the other Vox Media brands. Turns out that is much more difficult to do than I ever thought. <laughs> and it is because the brands are so different and they operate differently. The editorial teams are different. They have different processes and sense their sensibility and their tone. All of that's different. And the audiences are also so different. So the way that the strategist audience works and what gets them to click and convert is very different for the Verge audience. And so it took me and my team a little bit of time to really understand the nuances and differences of the various different brands and to tailor some of these best practices so that it fits for the individual brand. So that's been challenging because in some ways it feels like you have to kind of start from scratch in some ways to learn the brands and then develop some sort of a strategy and plan. But where it's been successful is having the scale of a much larger audience in a portfolio is helpful, especially when we're negotiating and dealing with the various different retail partners and the brands that are. And talking to a brand and saying, hey, we're speaking on behalf of not just the strategist, but it's the strategist, it's the cut, it's the verge, it's, you know, pop sugar, the dodo, eater, thrillist. I mean, that's a good powerful portfolio of brands to present to a lot of retailers. And there's definitely some leverage we can gain by speaking on behalf of all those brands. And then it's also nice in that a lot of times these brands come to us and they're like, we would love to see if there's opportunities for this type of a product or this type of an audience. And because we have such a great portfolio of brands, we're able to find good fits. So it may not be a great fit on pop sugar, but hey, your brand would actually work really, really well on the cut and the editorial team there is already covering you guys anyways. So let's see what we can make work there. And so having a wide portfolio of brands is, I think, a great thing for our e-commerce business development team and some parts of our sales team as well. Is sales at Vox across all the brands or are there specialists per brand? They're focused by industries. So sometimes that obviously aligns well. So the the team that's focused around consumer tech, obviously they work primarily with The Verge, but and the beauty folks work very closely with The Cut and Pop Sugar and The Strategist. But yeah, they're focused not by the editorial brands, but by the industry verticals. What are some of the trends that you're seeing now and, and that you expect to become more significant in the future around content and commerce? Yeah, as everyone is talking about, <laughs> there is exciting opportunities, but also some threats with AI. And there is, I think, a lot of 
conversations happening at all of the companies and amongst the folks in our industry about AI proofing the content while still taking advantage of the Google search traffic where so many publishers still rely on for that highly intent-driven traffic. So AI proofing your content could mean a lot of different things, but I think there is a movement towards how do we make sure our content is going to be something that audiences will want to come to, even if they don't get there through Google search. And so making the content so strong so that you could gain an organic audience without relying on search, I think that's going to be a big shift because a lot of publishers have gotten very comfortable writing in favor of the Google algorithm. And we're all guilty of doing it to some extent. But now we have to think beyond that and think about, okay, it's not just about stuffing the article with a bunch of keywords. Mm -hmm. It's actually really creating content that people want to get to, whether they see it directly on your site or through social or through email or other means. So I think there's definitely some interesting shifts due to the threat that AI poses. But also at the same time, I think AI presents interesting ways of helping us to be more efficient in this space. So given what I've experienced in the past six years being in this space and talking to a bunch of my peers too, there's still such a big manual component to this business. There's a lot of manual work that needs to be done. And that's what happens when there's so many disparate sources of data coming in. There's so many different affiliate networks out there. Amazon is its own thing. And then you're trying to also marry that up with your own internal site metrics. And I think AI does present interesting opportunities to automate a lot of what's been so far in manual. And that's interesting to me exactly what that means. I think that remains to be seen. And then lastly, I think in terms of other current trends, just more testing and experimentation on social, whether that's social commerce, whether that is also testing with new partners and vendors in the space. I think the affiliate space has been very stable for a long time without a ton of new innovation, but given just interest in lower funnel conversion from advertisers, as well as so many publishers getting into the space, there's finally some interesting players there that are offering solutions, new features, new ways to get an audience, automation tools, new data tools, new analytics platforms. So I think more testing and kind of new partners in the space is something I'm starting to see more and more of us doing, vetting some of those and talking to more external parties. And I think that's a good thing for the overall affiliate space. And hopefully that leads to more innovation. Well, this interview has been really interesting. To wrap it up, do you have any career advice for aspiring e-commerce and affiliate marketing professionals? I've done my fair share of hiring in this job, starting at New York Media and now at Vox Media. And, you know, it's not the most complicated space. It's not that hard to teach somebody who doesn't have a background in affiliate and e-commerce. But I think when I've seen people that are successful and progress 
really well in this space are people that are data oriented. There's data coming at you from all different sources. And if you can make sense of that, you can make some really smart decisions. And so I think being data focused, data oriented, and really comfortable with data is key factor. And then it just helps to be interested in the whole retail space in general and understand consumer shopping behavior and wanting to see all the different factors that impact consumer behavior. And I think people that have a real interest in understanding that and keeping up with developments in the retail space, I think those are people that are going to also be curious and have more ideas and more things that they want to try and bring new, fresh kind of perspective into the space. So I would say aspiring commerce and affiliate marketing professionals, like those are just good things to keep in mind to see if this is a good fit for you or not. Well, thanks so much, Camilla, for your time. Really appreciate it today. Thank you. It's been fun. And that wraps up another enlightening episode of the Smooth Operator podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Camilla Cho from Vox Media. Stay tuned for more episodes where we bring you the stories of exceptional individuals who have made their mark in the world of performance marketing. Don't forget to subscribe to the Smooth Operator podcast on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with your friends and colleagues who are as passionate about the industry as we are. Until next time, keep innovating, keep optimizing, keep operating smoothly.